Everybody, today is Sunday, January 27th, and we are bringing you Block Digest number 152 at block height 560,365. What is going on, everybody? Ooh, man, nothing much. It's been a race this morning, just uh, going through all this stuff. And man, I don't know. I literally like this uh, new intro, man. Every time I'm looking at that, I'm like, man, this is. I like this, man. This is like, it feels like we're all meeting. We're meeting in the den. How are you doing today, Janine? I have to say, every time you say nothing much, I think about uh, the nothing much that we know. <laughs> and for a second, I think you're talking about him. Yeah, we need to see more of nothing much. I hadn't seen him in a minute other than a lot of discussion on Twitter. So what has been up though, man? It's been a lot of stuff going on with uh, potential lightning developments, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time uh, digging around through shit last night. And uh, let's just say I'm going to work my hardest to keep my unbridled rage in check a little bit and keep the swearing to a minimum. Sure. But... Uh, yeah, Bitfury and their involvement in Lightning Network, uh, stay the fuck away from it. So um, first, uh, I'm going to get set up here and play a little clip from the Berlin Hackathon uh, where Janine hit a Bitfury representative with uh, a little bit of tough questions and then go into some of her interactions there. And then I'm going to break down the actual technical uh specifics as far as the software suit that pretty much confirmed me and her suspicion uh from pretty much the moment that bitfury announced that they were doing this lightning peach suit but uh give me a second to switch over the audio and i will get that clip ready on the team works on it, but they said it was going to be marketed to. Uh, so I noticed several months ago that Bitfury announced uh, the Crystal software, which they were planning, or you, I don't know who on the team works on it, but they said it was going to be marketed to law enforcement. And they also made a kind of contradictory statement saying that it would help Bitcoiners with their privacy. So I feel like getting involved in Lightning is a bit of a conflict of interest as well, because if you're selling software to law enforcement, uh, Lightning is supposed to improve privacy. So 
do you know if there's going to be any kind of integration of crystal with any of the lightning stuff or do you see it as a conflict well, or are they completely separate branches uh just to clarify things there are i mean if we like it or not in some countries if some i mean entities people or organizations do some legal transactions there are some kyc and ml procedures that you just need to follow if you want to follow love not everyone in crypto community uh, cares about that but there are who, who do and if we're talking about um i mean i don't know if it would sound a kind of proper but if we want uh this the bitcoin to be global to, uh, to attract not only the, this initial crypto community, but a wider audience. It, we, we need, some balance needs to be found between uh, this, its, its original nature of being everyone owns the money and no one knows no one, and some regulation procedure. So uh, as, as speaking of, I'm not sure if it's proper for, for me to speak on behalf of Crystal because I mostly focus on lightning stuff, but uh, the product is there to be used in the countries that want to make uh, crypto transactions legal and they have to pursue several um, KYC procedures. And by the way, exchanges and places like that may also try it because, you know, there are, I would say, not all the money in Bitcoin is really clean. so. And still makes sometimes makes I sense. make a point of not using any services that require KYC. So it's your choice. I mean, I mean, you can you can just disable, disable law enforcement. You may avoid as much as you can, and as you as you properly said, the lightning more or less tries to to allow that. But you know, there are, I would say there are different situations. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. I think we're. Yeah, by, by the way, one, one more point about that. About I mean, we're not, we're not in companies you now. Crystal is also a very controversial topic because the most feedback we get about it like, from crypto communities like yours. <laughs> but at the same time, you need to understand that if we, I mean, you know, if if you're talking about like big big bankers or law enforcement guys, that uh, when the crypto hype started, the initial reaction for them was just let's like cancel everything and stop and you know. Um, switch off all this, and uh, you 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 have to you know find some ways because things like crystal is actually um, one. I I think it's a software like crystal or other similar. Crystal is not unique uh, product in this space. It actually helps these guys to feel comfortable with. Bitcoin actually spreading around the world because otherwise there would be much more obstacles. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. excuse me to interrupt. Uh, maybe we are kind of running. Uh, it's an important question, but maybe we can discuss this, continue discussing this on site yeah, because we are running a little late already. And sorry, so sorry. thank you very much. Um, and yeah. thank you for answering all the questions. Thank you. Yeah, so to give a little background, that was at the Lightning Hack Day back in September of last year. And the reason I specifically um, wanted to, that was the only Q&A that I asked a question in. 
And I wanted to do that because Bitfury was actually a sponsor of that event. And I was already uncomfortable about that walking in. But especially when I saw that they were doing lightning stuff, I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's going to be a problem there. And it turns out uh, that there was. If you want to know more about, I mentioned Crystal in there, which I don't even know if that's relevant to the conversation here because I don't think they explicitly said they're using that regarding lightning. Uh, we'll get into what they are using, but um, if you want to see more about Crystal specifically, that was actually the subject of the first CK Snacks episode that Shinobi and I did called uh, Bits of Fury Blockchain Surveillance. Um, so if you want to get background on that. But uh, yeah, if you want to take it away, go into all of the problems that you discovered with their terms of service and privacy policy. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, first, I want to break down like what Peach actually is in its totality. It is an entire software suit to pretty much cover every aspect of interacting with the Lightning ecosystem. So there is a desktop wallet. There are mobile wallets. There is actually a hardware device for point-of-sale systems. There is a merchant system that is being designed to plug into payment processors online as well as most plugins to process payments. And there is even a watchtower setup that is being designed with no economic incentives, so functioning on altruism. It's, it's pretty much an all-encompassing tool suit for everything to deal with Lightning. And to be clear about the mobile applications, it is designed in the same way that the Zap Mobile Wallet currently is, where it is essentially just a front end to connect to a full Lightning node running on a server or a desktop. And it is also designed uh, to function in a way that a lot of the more centralized Lightning wallets are, where you can actually connect to somebody else's node to handle all of the backend systems um, of which Bitfury will be running a central mode, which it is actively encouraging people to connect to. So where is the problem you ask? Well, the first thing you see when you log into the mobile application is the fields to actually connect to a full lightning node and then two checkboxes. I agree to terms and conditions and privacy policy I agree to the personal data processing. Well, when you look through the actual terms of service, um, they collect a shit ton of private information. Okay, so what is this private information? It includes, but is not limited to, details of your visits to our software, including traffic data, location data, other communication data, Okay, that's a little fucked up. Why, did, why does Bitfury need to know where I am when I'm using my Lightning Wallet? Okay, um, how you use the software when you access it, how much time you spend with the app activated, the number of sessions within a given time unit, so like a week or a month and so on, the number of payments you make in one period of the wallet being open, the amount of payments, the payment type, uh, i.e. like a regular one-off payment or a streaming payment, which is one of the features that Peach has built in for metered services and so on, whether a payment succeeds or fails, the how often you have a channel opening, 
the lifetime of a channel, the number of channels you have opened, the channel capacity, the waiting time for channel opening, the waiting time for a transaction, the number of nodes that you pay to. And again, hmm, what the fuck do they need all this information for? And again, that is not the limit to what they will or can collect. They have given themselves free reign in these terms of service to collect absolutely everything you do in this wallet, which includes who you're paying, the route that a payment is taking, literally every single thing that you are doing on this fucking software. The only thing that they say they will not collect is your private keys. Now, what are they going to use this information for? The last thing that they have as an explicit use for this information is to comply with statutory obligations, i.e. sharing it with law enforcement. What do they also allow themselves to do with this information? Share it with all subsidiaries, which would include the crystal chain analysis platform, all affiliate companies, and Google Analytics. So this, this entire software stack has a terms of service that pretty much allow Bitfury to tag and track and log literally every minute detail of everything you are doing on the Lightning Network. There is absolutely no rational reason to be collecting this much information, to even have an application like this designed to collect information, let alone having in the terms of service the explicit statement that they can legally and will share any information that they are subpoenaed for with law enforcement. This is the exact antithesis of what the Lightning Network was designed to do. Keep things decentralized, improve privacy, and maintain the, the nature of a, interacting with a system that you have total control over access to and all of the information regarding your use of it. This is absolutely disgusting and frankly anybody in this ecosystem that tries to defend this or doesn't actively call this out as malicious i have just completely lost respect for yeah and i just want to point out that some people with some items on that list uh, especially people who you know don't understand how sensitive some of this information is they'll say well some of that data needs to be collected for operating purposes but usually what responsible companies do if there is some legitimate reason why they should be collecting that data for just normal service operations they would have an explicit policy of saying we will not keep such and such data beyond a certain point some of that data you know you don't need to keep it longer than you know a session some of that data you don't need to keep longer than maybe a few months at most but the fact that they don't have that kind of explicit policy they don't justify why that data is necessary that's a huge red flag like any company who actually cares about user privacy has a policy of how long they keep data when they destroy it how they destroy it also sometimes so that's that should be a red flag to everyone. Yeah, it's definitely uh, doesn't look or sound good at all. And you know, when we speculated about Crystal back then, like uh, wasn't really sure where what it was going to be implemented with. But the Lightning Network is for sure one of these things where it's being built out. And right now, it's you know still relatively young. I mean, this has got to be seen as like just bad acting. You know, like you're trying to uh, you're just trying to 
install some level of surveillance in a system that, uh, I mean, this is the adversarial space we work in, I suppose. It's like we, we just, I guess, should understand that as we're building stuff out, there's going to be people constantly building out things to, uh, to follow up on what we're doing. And uh, it's upsetting to see it. I mean, Bitfury is a pretty big name in the space. And I mean, you know, it's hard to say what exactly they were doing with Crystal, but I mean, you read these times terms of service and you don't exactly know what your data is going to be used for explicitly. I mean, it just seems like they're trying to figure out a way to surveil the Lightning Network as, as easily as possible. It's, uh, you know, and try to basically provide that information for law enforcement. And we're lucky if we get a warrant. I mean, really, the way things work nowadays, if it's like you're a private company, you're not going to get that kind of paper trail. You'll probably just get an NDA and then you're going to have to, you know, sacrifice the information. And see, the thing is, the way that this term of service is constructed is they explicitly give themselves a use for your data, including handing it over to law enforcement. And the way they've structured their sharing of data with their affiliates, with their subsidiaries, and with Google Analytics is sharing it for anything that pretty much anything that we want done with this data by these other entities allows us in these terms to share this data. So they, this terms of service is explicitly constructed to allow all of this information to be shared with Crystal, a, or a Bitfury subsidiary. And like it, it is airtight constructed so that they can just do that. They can collect all this information and they have covered all of their bases to completely legally hand it over to a chain analysis platform. Yeah, and I've noticed there's been uh, some discussion about that, about exchanges not being transparent about whether they're using chain analytics or how much they use chain analytics. And uh, there's a lot of people who know exactly which exchanges are using chain analytics and how much they use them. But of course, those people can't speak about it because either that information was you know, obtained in a way that was privileged or whatever. But I hope that more of that comes out soon. And um, I also want to say that like it was really funny because when I when I questioned them at the lightning hack day first of all everyone is pretty much uncomfortable or at least visibly people in the room seemed uncomfortable with me asking this kinds of this kind of question and obviously you saw there in the clip they did, never gave me a yes or no answer about whether they would integrate surveillance software into their lightning stuff um, obviously, you know, whether I haven't checked out the code of the app yet or any of the apps in the suite, um, but if anyone were to check it out, you know, even if right now it doesn't have any of those capabilities, who knows, um, they are at perfect liberty in this terms of service to change that in the future. And so you should be aware that they are not only legally able to do that, if you agree to the terms of service, they are also completely willing to do that based on the history of their behavior and their statements. Um, and so my my stance is that when you're developing privacy enhancing software, uh, this kind of maneuvering and not giving a straight answer to a question um, and also being completely willing to be super friendly with law enforcement, that should all be nipped in the bud as soon as possible. Because if you allow these companies to introduce these surveillance mechanisms and then be promoted in a space that is trying trying to build privacy enhanced technology, uh, you are going to undermine the system significantly for people who actually need to use Bitcoin. Because uh, one of the things, you know, part of the conversation I had with Pavel, who was the person speaking there, um, was afterwards, um, 
because apparently, you know, I had really, <laughs> I had really upset the room. And so I talked to him after that Q and A thing. And, you know, I asked him directly the question of, you know, if, if the law enforcement who come to you are, are whether they explicitly tell you or you suspect that they are seeking data on, you know, for example, human rights activists or anyone who is dealing with, you know, a type of activity that we in the West may find legitimate and permissible um, under our legal system, but in other countries could get you killed. He did not give me a straight answer to that question. And I find that not only offensive, I find that dangerous. And I do not think that this kind of behavior should be invited into the Lightning Network development space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the another thing uh, you, you kind of just touched on a little bit there is just the aspect that Bitfury gathering data uh, of this degree on anybody using their software can potentially damage the privacy of people who aren't. Because even though it is way more difficult and complicated to analyze lightning traffic versus on-chain traffic because of the, the onion routing and the, the way that things are structured with payment linking, it's still possible theoretically. And in any kind of anonymity set analysis like this, if you can definitively identify a subset of what you're analyzing, it makes it easier and less resource intensive to analyze the things you don't have definitively identified because you've reduced the anonymity set. Yeah, this just looks uh, nightmarish all the way around. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, like the way he was like saying, just you know, just follow KYC AML. Like that's what he said. And, um, you know, I kind of, uh, I understand like some people, maybe there's a few of us, a few people that are listening that are like, why are we making such a big deal out of this? You know, and it's like, uh, I don't know if they quite understand what's going on here and like this long game that we've been playing and like the way that we're trying to help restore some of these rights that have been taken away from us. I mean, whenever I came into the system, I was very much just sort of, yes, I just followed KYC AML because I'm on this leash. I've been here for a long time. I've worked with the state. The state knows who I am. They follow me on a regular basis. I'm, I'm fairly certain. But I mean, guys, people like yourself who have been able to maintain a distance from that, and they just want you to just opt in and just follow along. And, you know, I'm, I don't know, I don't know if people get that you're stepping into, okay, I no longer have a right to privacy. I no longer have a right to due process. I no longer have a right to free speech. And if you think that's overstating the things, then you're just not looking at the bigger picture of all of this. And, uh, you know, it's, it is upsetting and jarring. And honestly, I mean, whenever I look at this sort of thing, it makes me wonder how Bitfury is actually using this as a profit model and not just military contract i mean like who are they who are they contracted out by which government i mean like that's the kind of thing my mind is looking to it's like okay where are they getting their funding from and which government entity wants to make sure that this side is always built out uh, and like you're saying i mean like it it hurts the anonymity set of the other side i mean it's this is bad news was there any more comment on this one before we headed to the next one i guess just real quick um They've also given themselves the room to share your data, not just in being subpoenaed for criminal matters, but to defend themselves legally for any reason, um, even in regards to fraud prevention or credit risk, and as well to any company 
that may purchase them in the future. So the, this this data is pretty much just going to float free out there if they ever get their hands on it. Yeah, my final message is just that this should be another reason to always read the terms of service and privacy policy of anything you use. Right. It's really like you've got to watch the companies now because they'll send you an email saying, we're changing our terms of service. <laughs> All right, let's step away from this nightmare for a minute and let's get into something that uh, is looking a little bit brighter. You know, like we're saying, you know, we're building things out. They're building things out. Um, you know, we'll just keep building. So uh, last week we mentioned this party happened where you uh, participated in that celebration. You know, we, we know you got really hammered, but let's talk about the technicals of what happened that night. So over the hiatus, Jack Mallers made a post on Twitter about this evening where Zap would be testing out its new point of sale system. It's actually some hardware that's said to be similar build to the nodal units with some software that would turn anyone into a fully fledged self-sovereign Bitcoin merchant who could start accepting lightning payments. The back end of this software stack is Bitcoin Core with lightning and BTC pay server which allows the bar to be in full control of their private keys. It sounds like the bartender would walk around with tablets that allowed them to pick items off the menu that was preloaded into the system. After picking out the desired items for the customer, they would be presented with a QR code that allowed a lightning payment to not only handle the tab, but also a tip, which that's great because, uh, you know, I've seen some implementations tested out here locally that just don't allow that. It's just all sort of baked in and you don't get to pick the tip. So uh, now that now the tablets wouldn't actually hold the private keys, Jack says, thanks to Lightning's macron, mac macaroons, the bar owner management can, can give selective permissions to the bartender point of sale application, such an, as invoice only permissions, not allowing the app to send any money and not having customers and employees walking around with private keys. It's great to see all these nuances that are very important being flushed out in the system test. It was just a test and I'm sure Jack and Zap and the Zap team got some great information from the event. What really excites me is something that is exciting a lot of people here in Colorado, which is the ability to set one of these up in a dispensary here locally. I mean, uh, Jack says industries that have struggling relationships with banks have been very interested in this technology and they plan to keep push and uh, Jack and the team plan to keep pushing the Zap point of sale to where it's helping average people use the Lightning Network with the security and open access of the Bitcoin network. This is all fantastic news. As someone who's lived here in Colorado for a couple of years now, it's crazy to see what this uh, booming industry of the cannabis has to put up with in the way of license, licensing and legal enforcement. I personally witnessed cops from neighboring states harass dispensary employees to accept their obviously BS ID, you know, like an ID that just doesn't look good. It's obvious that it's uh, it's not them or it's obvious that they're just like it's a it's a bunk ID. And, you know, they do this in order to bust the business, which if that happens three times in these operations, they could be shut down. And the amount of money this industry is making for the region is crazy. And the statistics show it. I mean, it's helping on a lot of different levels. However, all the value that system is making is being routed through the current financial construct that allows that also favors pharmaceutical industries, private prisons, military contractors who make equipment for law enforcement and many other sectors that just have conflicting interests with the cannabis market. If we could route our value through an independent system like the Bitcoin network, that would effectively hinder their ability to try and bring down this industry. 
I'm incredibly lucky to be here on the ground where all of this is being developed, and I'm going to keep you guys updated along the way. I'll say as someone who's really been thinking about the back-end system for all, of all this for a business, it really is a big hindrance to get the employees up to speed. I mean, like I can easily explain, I can, I can explain the way a, a, an employee can easily counteract with a customer and say like, this is why you should use Bitcoin and everything. But the, the switching over from their usual point of sale to, you know, a BTC pay server that we set up and, uh, you know, have a QR code and, and that whole, like, it's a little bit clunky. The user interface experience is still good from like a user standpoint. Like we, we could do that. I mean, we could use that for certain things, but just grabbing employees off the street and saying like, here's where the items you're going to sell. And we're going to use Bitcoin and lightning to make these payments. If we have this point of sale built out, it would really help just, uh, you know, to where employees could actually use the system and it wouldn't have to be this uh, burden switch from a point of sale that they're comfortable with to uh, something that they're not exactly comfortable with. And that's why, I mean, like this whole hardware point of sale, um, you know, we're seeing these hardware nodes being built out as a business model. And I mean, it really is, uh, it's, it's been taking off and, uh, you know, there's definitely ways to build that out in a better way where you could sort of include these merchant services in a point of sale. And I mean, Jack and the team at Zap's been doing really good as far as user interface and user experience work in the past. And it looks like uh, just from the demos given on Twitter that this thing looks pretty slick. And I imagine if uh, an employee came in and we hired him that day and we said, hey, look, this is the point of sale and this is the Bitcoin point of sale, it would be a lot easier for them to just say, okay, I can do this. So, um, yeah, I think it would just be a lot more familiar. So um, this is what's been going on with that. And I think this is a, a much more positive development than that, uh, that BitFury point of sale. So uh, I think everybody should be taking a look at this one. So Shinobi, you went to that event. Do you remember enough to tell us what you thought about that system or uh, what you, yeah. you think? I mean, aside from the liquidity constraints, just because, you know, things are still building out. It was a pretty solid system. It was just a nice, simple interface with the businesses, like product menu in there. The, the bartender literally just had to click the things. There was an option for tips and then you got a payment request. And I mean, like, honestly, uh, anybody who really deal hunts or uses coupons a lot, uh, should know that there are people out there who are nervous about and have issues with fiat point of sale systems. So I really don't think the learning curve for a lightning one is that much different to your average employee. Yeah, right on. That's where I think it's uh, really going to shine is just having that point of sale and the hardware there. And, um, you know, it's going to manage the private keys and, you know, we know, Jack and, uh, you know, the Bitcoin family, I mean, they're in this and they are real Bitcoiners. I could see them building this out in a way to where, you know, it actually is good for the entire ecosystem, not something this, uh, this nightmare story we covered at first. So I think it's all a good thing. But um, yeah, that was that story. Mm -hmm. All right. And then who's up? I'm up next. Okay. So uh, pretty uh, a neat little thing, I guess, uh, that happened uh, this is before the last episode, but this one should be, after today, we should be all caught up on news we had stacking up during the hiatus. 
But Grubles uh, made a post uh, three days ago um, demonstrating the, the use of the Blockstream uh, Lightning satellite feed. And it was just kind of an interesting thing. Like somebody was pretty much just using it as like a little satellite powered microblog as the first post. And it was pretty much just a developer uh, describing themselves as somebody from a post-Soviet country, kind of just, you know, like microblogging and just like vocalizing the shock of actually being able to pay for you know, uh, a setup like this where he's just broadcasting his messages to the entire world <laughs> for testnet lightning coins. And even with mainnet, what would be fractions of a, of a penny. And I mean, he just kind of goes over like his story stumbling into Bitcoin, trying to buy mushrooms <laughs> on the Silk Road and then not going through with it because of the uh, complexity and actually tumbling his coins and disconnecting them from where he purchased it. And it, it's really just kind of an interesting read. I mean, like, uh, like Grubles put it, it's something like straight out of Blade Runner. But it's kind of him just a little bit uh, talking about his history, getting into Bitcoin, just some like vague ideas about what we can actually build with this technology, like uncensorable websites using Bitcoin and the IPFS. And you know, it's, it's really just like a neat thing. Like this is something like we're all going to look back on years from now and it's just going to be like this, this was where something started. I mean, you know, to, to really look at like what this system enables, like we talked about it a few episodes back, but like this is really something profound starting. And if you guys haven't seen it, I really suggest you uh, check this out in the show notes. The whole uh, log of what he's posted so far uh, is on Grubel's Twitter stream, but uh, I don't, I don't want to just sit here and read it off all now because it's really pretty long. Yeah, that's definitely one really cool story. I mean, like we did sort of speculate for a long time on all the different possibilities. And I mean, one of them that we talked about was just like how this messaging service, like, um, you know, it's like these satellites would be great for uh, censorship resistant transactions and immutability during times of strife and national natural disasters. And, you know, the way it's hard to get information in and out and the messages really controlled. So, I mean, this would be a... Uh, a real big uh, step in a positive direction to where whenever things are going a direction and everybody's wondering what's the actual real story. I mean, it'll probably be a, uh, a satellite messenger through the Blockstream satellite where they're like, okay, this, this is what's going on. You know, this is some word from out of there. And I mean, it's just, it's a great development. And I mean, it's really kind of fun as like an, you know, an engineer that tinkers with stuff. I mean, it's one of those things where I, I it makes me more, I'm more likely to go grab a satellite and try and get this thing hooked up to where I could start piping in messages. This is one of those things that just gets uh, engineers excited. I mean, I've seen people excited about this already just because of the idea that you could, you know, these were possibilities coming up. So now that people actually see the messages going through, and I'm sure the bus is, is stirring a lot. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's uh, also a link to uh, Blockstream's website. You can actually uh submit messages through there so if you guys want to tinker with this 
I highly suggest you go play with testnet coins before they get out of beta uh, while you can use it for free. <laughs> There's really no telling how this market will develop. Yeah, I think I've already seen some people tweet out um, that I guess they're receiving some of the messages being sent over that and someone has been like broadcasting journal entries and things like that. Yeah, or that's no. the, uh, the the micro blogger I was talking about, uh, the post-Soviet developer, as he describes himself. Yeah, that's awesome to just think about, you know, somebody out there. I mean, yeah, I mean, he could be in one of these countries where it's real hard to get communications out. And now he spits one of these communications out and anybody that's got a hookup to that satellite is going to get that message. It's It's pretty interesting. Pretty cool too. Mm -hmm. All right, though, Janine, you're up. Yes, we must talk about uh, the exchange that cannot be named. So on January 24, three days ago, um, those involved in the rehabilitation process of Mount Dox, oh, I'm sorry, I mean Mount Gox, published an announcement uh, that the Tokyo District Court has, quote, issued an order to change the submission deadlines from uh, former users of the exchange platform. And this was due to the large number of proofs of rehabilitation claims, which they say will, they will uh, require a significant amount of time to seek correction of deficiencies and investigate the details of filed claims. Uh, and obviously this is an English translation. Um, so hopefully that was translated correctly. Uh, the new dates are as follows. Uh, for claims against Mt. Gox for return of cryptocurrency and money, those must be submitted by March 15th, 2019. Uh, the period for rehabilitation claims other than exchange-related rehabilitation claims has already passed. It ended on January 24th. The examination period for proofs of rehabilitation claims will end on March 29th. And the submission deadline for the proposed rehabilitation plan has been changed to April 26, 2019. Yeah, this. Oh, you go, Rick. I was just going to say that this was something that popped up in the mumble. And like we were talking about how it's just like it seems because, you know, we talked about this when it was first discussed, this idea of, you know, setting, setting up claims for people that were, uh, out of money from Mt. Gox, and I guess they didn't get that many claims, and so uh, they're putting this back out there to see if maybe they're going to get some. And yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good uh, play on words there, Janine. Maybe it's because you know people don't want to really get doxed. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, you know, if it's a sizable amount of money, that's not necessarily going to connect things to what you still have. So I guess you know that's. That's a personal uh, or personal choice you have to make as far as your privacy, but you know I guess last call. And if you know anybody in the space that you know was using Mount Gox that doesn't really follow the news or keep up with current events, you know you should at least tell them about this so they can decide if they want to deal with this. Because I mean, you don't, you're not going to get any money back. Yeah, so just to clarify, I think it was the deadline moved to April, right? Uh, no, that's the deadline. Uh, let me look at it again. That's the deadline for when the rehabilitation plan is um, must be submitted. The period for claims has now been moved to March 15th. So you have about a month and a half or so. 
Get on that, guys. I'm mm -hmm. actually thinking I need to, uh, you know, just double check with some people I know and make sure that they've done all this too. Well, do it while you still can if you want to. But I guess uh, next up is kind of an interesting development, although it is a little shy on actual technical details. But uh, last August, I believe, there were very isolated incidents of uh, ransomware that were affecting mining farms and actual ASIC firmware. And there has been a big string of infections over the past week or two, <clears throat> mostly concentrated in China. And again, it's, it's pretty sparse on details, but most of the infections have been targeting Antminer S9s and T9s. Although there has been reports of L3, which is a... Uh, Litecoin ASIC equipment being infected and a very small amount of Avalon devices infected as well. But the, 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 the real way that this is operating in terms of infection is not really specifically clear, but I have to speculate that really the only route here would be using remote um, ability to flash or modify firmware so the the api to actually manage the device remotely but this is just rapidly infecting uh decent sized miner farms in china and pretty much uh what it does is after a device has been infected when you try to remote into the device through the management screen it displays a graphic with an ant and hammers and then displays a message in English and Chinese demanding either a 10 Bitcoin ransom or um, it gives you a link to download a specialized version of the ransomware with a unique identifier and requires you to infect at least a thousand other devices to unlock the currently infected um, machines. And if you don't do one of these two things, then the ransom note pretty much threatens to disable the overheat protection, turn off your mining rigs fan, and pretty much completely destroy the physical device. And this is actually something that can spread rapidly through uh, mining farms to all of the devices hooked up to a network. And there's been some reports um, of literally up to 4,000 devices being infected within minutes after a mining farm has been compromised. And, you know, at the end of the day, like you can just pretty much shut down your miners and remove power, which would prevent any damage actually coming to the device, but you're compounding your, your revenue losses with that in that you're not only not making money while the device shuts down after being infected, but now you have to manually go through and physically reflash every single infected device. And when you're talking about mining farms that host thousands or tens of thousands of machines, that is a huge undertaking and it takes a lot of time because a lot of these big farms don't really have like a, a huge workforce. Like the the teams of like 10, 20 or so people that generally manage these farms, that would, that would be a very heavy workload to go through and manually reflash everything. 
and this highlights, you know, a really big potential attack vector for this ecosystem that is, it, it has things like this compromising farms have happened before and things like this have been discussed in the past, but not really a lot. And it's when, when you look at a mining farm, this is a whole interlinked local network. And if you can compromise the outer, you know, boundaries of that network, then it's like any like big system you compromise. You can now start messing with or modifying or damaging things in the entire network. And the potential for targeted attacks like that is a big threat for the overall network because at the end of the day, we depend on these machines to continue the blockchain progressing forward. And I think this is really something I hope that's going to wake up a lot of people operating farms and get them to really think seriously and long-term about how to maintain their farm's security regarding its network connections to the outside world. Yeah, we've seen some uh, interesting stories about Bowware taking over computers to, uh, you know, mine Monero or something like that, but nothing really like of uh, this level, I guess, where, um, you know, these S9s and T9s and all these different uh, miners can be affected and uh, I'm, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it kind of, I imagine most like uh, little mining operations, it's just another one of those things that they really have to watch out for. And I mean, every mining operation, but I imagine big mining operations are going to have the uh, security people there to make sure that their systems aren't really compromised. And um, just thinking about these smaller farms, you know, they might, uh, might want to have a specialty in making sure that their systems stay clean because uh, I imagine this threat isn't going away. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this potentially, you know, to, to shill my secret employer is a, a very legitimate use case for the Blockstream satellite feed and something that, you know, Blockstream can actually think about in terms of maintaining its infrastructure to provide a net good for other people. You can isolate incoming connections and only receive things through that satellite feed and then have a connection back to the network that only sends things out. And then as long as that satellite feed security is maintained, you've done a lot to really reduce your attack surface. That's a really good point. Um, any small farm operations, go, back, go on back just a minute, listen to that one more time and implement Mm -hmm. So I guess, uh, Janine, you got anything to pitch in here? Nope. All right. Nice. On to the next one. So I'm going to just uh, try to sum this up uh, pretty quickly. And if you want, you can dig through the 8btc.com uh, article. Uh, the, the tweet with the link is in the show notes, but uh, that, that website is usually horrendous in the Google Translate's uh, product or result. So might have to go through it a few times before you can link up the names that are translated differently <laughs> in different parts. But um, long and short is there, it doesn't seem that there's been an official denial of Bitmain's IPO by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but the chairman 
does not seem like he is going to allow this to go through. And really a lot of the reasons um, he's giving are pretty in-depth analysis of the overall market. Like this is not something that uh, is just being dismissed or ignored because of crypto. Like they've actually done their homework in looking at market dynamics and how it's affecting eBank, Avalon and Bitmain, which are the three companies trying to IPO in the Hong Kong exchange. And either eBank or Avalon, um, Again, like the, these companies' names have a, a different translation in every other sentence, so I forget exactly which one is rumored to be looking at an IPO in America now because of the attitude on the Hong Kong exchange. But really, it's since the, the market started going down at the beginning of last year, this has really started shifting the dynamic of the entire mining ecosystem and market. And it's really gotten to a point where the, the price lowering with machines usually dynamically adjusting their price based on Bitcoin's price and the overall difficulty of the network has just really saturated the market. And during 2017 and the, the big run up in price, there was a huge gap between supply and demand as far as ASICs that led to these companies exploding in terms of revenue and sales. And that's kind of completely reversed itself. And it has the uh, chairman of the exchange kind of thinking about the long-term prospects of a company actually being able to survive doing this uh, at all in this ecosystem regarding retail sales and the, the viability of consistent revenue and profit as something traded on the exchange when any kind of fluctuation or change in these supply dynamics for this equipment pretty much completely destroys a market demand for what these companies are selling and like honestly like looking at this this is kind of just more and more reinforcing you know my outlook in that over the next five or ten years i really think that we might start seeing a shift away from companies producing asics to sell on the open market and see an entire shift in the entire mining ecosystem where people getting into mining are handling the full stack. Like somebody investing to mine Bitcoin is going to be taking chip designs or making their own chip designs, fabricating them, assembling the equipment and actually operating them and doing the entire thing from beginning to end in terms of the, the, the line from production to mining use, because it's not really something that's, sensible in the consumer market long-term. It's not something there'll be constant demand or profitability for. And I think that's inevitably going to leave it up to large capitalized individuals who have very low time preference and long-term time horizons. And, you know, I, I really think just looking at the fundamentals of how that market works, like that shift is inevitable and just unavoidable at this point. So that just does not bode well for companies that are producing ASICs for the consumer market. Yeah, I mean, uh, how these IPOs and these uh, big mining companies go, I mean, you know, the the IPO aspect of it, it's you know, like, I mean, you're right. I mean, as far as consumers interest and the miners interest, it seems like the miners, you know, they have their own interest. And I mean, 
I don't know if necessarily we're always going to know what exactly they're doing because a lot of them, you know, they have their own little stashes. And I don't know, like, uh, I think it's a good transfer into this story that I've covered as far as this uh, Incilion, you know, working on this Grin project. So is there any comments? I mean, other than that, uh, you wanted to cover on that one? Uh, no, not really, but actually, uh, Aaron, you just, just do the, the inner silicon stuff. I'll switch the, the show notes around, but the, the, I'll just do the block stuff after that. Okay. So yeah, the in silicon, uh, yeah, I, you know, I guess it was a matter of time before we talked about this, uh, grin project getting, and now it's, uh, you know, it's getting ASICs and the company in silicon made an announcement on Twitter saying, quote, and Silicon is happy to announce that our world-class engineering team is currently designing a designing a very cool Grin ASIC miner to support the Grin community. We are going to launch our best-in-class miner early this summer. And uh, they went on to talk about how their track record for delivering products is all stellar. So uh, the last time we really covered Encilion was when they were involved in the Sciacorn fork that uh, bricked their S11 miner as well as the Bitmain's hardware. And I guess it's no surprise to see them develop ASICs as on, on the Grin network at, as it's got lots of speculation behind it just because of the Mimblewimble aspect of it. And as you know, we were all hyped about it a year ago or so. And to be honest, I still think it's kind of interesting to see where it goes. But after this past year of the Lightning Network being built out, liquid side chains and these large coin joints from Wasabi, I'm not so worried anymore about fungibility aspects of Bitcoin like I was a year ago. And I think it just has to continue to be built out and we'll start to see these solutions being used over Grin. And I don't know, this just feels like it's a another alt testing new tech. I guess I could see uh, why they are making hardware specific for the network. They want to profit. And like I said earlier, the market has a lot of speculation behind it. And uh, this is just like what we're saying as far as the Encilion goes. I mean, these guys, they were developing that... Uh, S11 for the uh, Sciacoin and then the Sciacoin network uh, forked them off and you know now they're doing this with Grin and you know when they're going to be mining before they actually sell their equipment. I mean there's just a lot of background stuff going on where I imagine they don't necessarily want to publish all that. I mean what, what's the company we've been seeing? GMO's been doing the best job I think about reporting all their uh, the way that they've been building out their system but besides that I don't think we've really seen anything like that. And um, yeah, maybe that's where these IPOs are having difficulty. Mm -hmm. You know, th this kind of ties into like a little bit about what I was just talking about with, you know, overall market dynamics, you know, like GMO has stopped actually producing and selling their miners. And I mean, they're going to continue to mine and run their own operations, but they've given up on the consumer market for now because they pretty much just hit massive losses during all of this year and you know it's it's just obviously like a little grin wow fair launch uh that people had gpu farms set up for instantly and now there's asics coming down the line but you know if if things kind of take the turn they did with monero or Siacoin and you see a fork attempt to kind of brick these ASICs, I really think that this is just kind of reinforcing those market dynamics I brought up, which are going to inevitably kill consumer-facing mining businesses and just lead to miners 
producing things themselves from design fab to running them because they're the reason companies like in a silicon like bitmain like all, all of the asic companies build asics for other coins is the market saturates on something you need to move on to something else to keep that that revenue and that profit coming in and if we see you know altcoins just kind of stubbornly forking and in damaging and making these asics useless that's yet another thing besides just the natural supply and demand of this market that is going to hurt their ability to actually make revenue and profit yeah i think those long-term price horizons on some of that it's like uh it's gonna be hard to convince all your consumers like yeah it'll be all right you know we're losing money for you for a year but we'll be fine next year promise Mm -hmm. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how it is. I mean, like, Grin is set up to allow, like, one algo to be ASIC-friendly and another to try to avoid ASICs. But, you know, it's what happens if that second algo is, you know, has an ASIC designed for it as well. Or what happens if the community sentiment changes? I mean, it's this, like, the, the business model is just really kind of up in the air. Yeah, and let's not even break into the trust model. <laughs> so, yeah, what else was going on? Sorry to break that story up, but it did seem like that would flow pretty well. Yeah, it worked out. All right, so next up is Block Labs. So what does Block do besides uh, advice for ICOs and shill shitcoins that steal people's money if you don't claim them before... A date that is already passed when they publicly announce it. Um, oh, well, apparently, um, a company Titan, um, whose relationship I'm not entirely clear on um, with Block, although I believe they're they're associated with the Block Labs research and development arm, has apparently spent years um, in the operation of their own crypto mining farms developing a management software uh, suite to optimize um, overclocking, uh, electricity delivery, and just make your mining operation as profitable as possible. And they've officially um, opened beta and are now taking applications for early access to the software. And the interesting thing is they're giving it away for free. But the catch is, if you use their software, um, the terms are pretty much you profit sharing um, your mining revenue with them. And so really, I'm not sure how viable this is in, in terms of a revenue stream. And also, I'm not sure how much it makes sense in terms of investment, given that they admit they've spent years developing this in-house for their own operations. But I mean, it, it really comes down to the math at the end of the day. And if they, like you, you have what your farm is making now, you have any increase in revenue that this optimization stack um, using deep learning can give you. And it makes no economic sense to use this software if Block wants more than the extra revenue you get using their software. And so depending on really how much this can optimize any individual mining farm, 
I'm not really sure how much revenue that equates to. And also, really, what's to stop people from, you know, reverse engineering the software and just using it? Or like, what, what are the modes of enforcement to, to guarantee uh, revenue unless the software is given total control over your mining revenue? And in which case, that seems like a, a not an intelligent uh, security decision for a mining operation. And as far as enforcing it, if it's not done in the software, well, Bitcoin miners are all over the globe. Some of them operate illegally. Some operate in gray areas. Like, how exactly do you enforce that? So it's, you know, it's, I mean, they finally actually built a product and released it, but... This, this doesn't seem like something to justify the fact that this company has literally been around for years. And aside from this and shilling shit coins and advising for ICOs, I don't really see what the hell they're doing. Yeah, I mean, like, not just that. I mean, we are starting to see some of these um, new mining companies actually take this initiative on their own, where they're already sort of building out different modes for these miners to consume either more power, or less power. You know, they're either loud or quiet. You know, I mean, these things are being built out uh, sort of in-house. And I mean, like you're saying, I mean, the software itself, I mean, why would you as a miner, like we just talked about, you know, this aspect of the ASIC uh, malware and the virus that could come in and the way that you need to protect yourself from that. Why would you hand over your, uh, your ability on your rewards, like where they're being denominated to like, that just seems like a big red flag. And like we were saying earlier about just basically bad actors in the space. I mean, Jeff Garzik and block really hasn't done that much other than like you're saying, I mean, it's been a long stream of like, this will work, this will work, this will work. And it's like uh, never really any kind of actual progress that's trying to build out the system in a way that's uh, that's going to actually help everyone. I mean, this is something that it could benefit a few people, but those people, I imagine, are actually have their own in-house security, their own in-house engineers, and the mining companies are also building out things that are more favorable for consumers. I mean, this just seems like a bad place to you know, build out uh, some software. I mean, like you were saying, I mean, why not just grab it, re-engineer it and, you know, do something for yourself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, I guess we'll see how this works out, but I mean, this doesn't really seem to, I don't know, justify this company in my mind, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably see them make some comments later down the road, but yeah, <laughs> I need to just uh, exit. So I guess uh, you're up, Rick. What's going All on right. with Overstock? Yeah, Overstock. Yeah, so not that much, just an update, really. We talked uh, last year about how Overstock was going all in on crypto. And, well, their token trading platform T0 has officially launched this past Thursday, which... Uh, you know, the Overstock CEO, Patrick Byrne, had announced at the uh, North American Bitcoin conference down there in Miami uh, last week. So this is a product for accredited investors who trade their tokens, who trade these tokens through Dinosaur Financial Group. And this is all brought to us from the DC Ventures, which is that subsidiary of Overstock. 
and the platform is being launched in the time frame given with their initial announcement late last year. But several days before the launch, users on the company's Telegram noted the registration process with Dinosaur had been taking several days to complete. Customers also complained that communications with the broker-dealer were prolonged and even wire transfers were taking days to confirm. And Mark Nelson told Coindesk, quote, which is just uh, Mark Nelson's a user of this uh, trading platform, told Coindesk, quote, I signed up last week and tokens listed as pending transfer today. I expect them to be tradable tomorrow. The account is open, so it is approved, just waiting on the completion of the token transfer. And, end quote. And, like, I can be a understanding of, you know, hiccups whenever it comes to launches and software and the way that all goes about. But, I mean, maybe we should be holding Overstock to a greater standard since, you know, they've been such a big company and saying they're going all in. And, you know, then they just released this uh, thing that they're throwing out for a time frame that they released late last year. I mean, maybe they should have pushed the time frame and, you know, gotten it running a little bit more smoother. But it looks like they're uh, already running into some hiccups in this development. So, yeah, not that much there. Just like letting people know that it's available or it's been launched, but it's got hiccups and <laughs> it's only available to accredited investors. Like, I don't know, to me, this whole T0 and, you know, the way that they've gone, like to me, it's like, yeah, they went all in blockchain. You know, I mean, like they're doing stuff that's blockchain, not Bitcoin. And I don't know, to me, I get kind of just like it's, you know, they're working on it, but I don't know. It's not that interesting. But what do you guys think about it? I mean, like, honestly, like I'm not really too psyched about this. I mean, it, it's there's almost no real technical details on this platform anywhere even the white paper was pretty much just about their ico and like it just seems like a completely centrally controlled database that's just using the structure of a blockchain and it's just it's not that interesting to me like the whole like realm of like tokenizing securities is interesting to me in the context of like distributed environments or pushing it to an extreme and actually running it in a fully decentralized way on something like Bitcoin. But I mean, they, they pumped a lot of money into this and they've been doing a lot of integration with the legacy system and dealing with regulators. But I'm, I'm just way more interested in platforms like Liquid doing things like this because the whole point of doing something like a tokenized security to me isn't just about tokenizing it. It's about having it be able to interact with other assets atomically. It's having a, a, a distributed model in terms of what's keeping track of it. And I mean, like Liquid is not fully decentralized, but it's set up in a way where there are a lot of different players that all have influence on it. And there's no unilateral ability to control or shut things down or wall people out of things. And that allows interaction with things like Bitcoin, with, you know, stable coins and atomic trades that aren't just in a centralized database that's using cryptography. And, you know, more interesting things like actually paying out dividends in crypto in, in an automated way. And it's, I just, 
like I, I think it's really inevitable people are going to try platforms like T0 and they might actually take off, but I'm not very interested in that. Yeah, I mean, like I definitely have the same sentiment. I mean, I was reading the story, writing up the notes going like, man, I should grab another story. <laughs> it's like this thing. Is, but I mean, it does warrant a little bit of discussion about it because it is kind of just showing like, you know, these big guys that were, you know, big names and they said they were stepping all in. I mean, we're seeing where they're all in going. And uh, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I mean, you know, like, I mean, I think it would be good if they did actually try to build out stuff on top of, you know, other products that guys are building and try to find ways to make that more efficient within Bitcoin. But you know, the way these guys are, a lot of them, they sort of try to see their own picture in this game and then they run with it. And so that's where, that's where Overstock and the DC Ventures are headed. But uh, what's going on in Italy and open timestamps, Janine? Oh, we're already at mine already? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, it doesn't have to do with open timestamps uh, specifically. There's not really too much going on with the story, but basically some politicians uh, who are members of the Italian Senate, uh, Senato della Repubblica, or apologies to Giacomo for my Italian language sins that I might make in this uh, segment. Um, they have recently proposed an amendment to Article 8 of the Senate Act uh, number 989, which was passed in December. And uh, as I said, Italian is not in my language uh, repertoire, but the modified text for Article 8 adds some language about technologies based on distributed registers and smart contracts. And paragraph three says that the um, memorization or perhaps notarization might be a better word of documents could be done using these distributed registers and it would have a legitimate legal effect in accordance with European Union regulations quote, uh, this is referencing that document, on electronic identification and trust services for electronic transactions in the internal market, uh, referencing the EU internal market, uh, which is about, quote, promoting a fully integrated digital single market by facilitating the cross-border use of online, service, online services with particular attention to facilitating secure electronic identification and authentication. Uh, and according to... Uh, uh, I think it's Yogita Katri on, at Coindesk. The amendment has already been approved by the Senate Committee of Constitutional Affairs and Public Works. Um, and she got that according to finance magnets and to become law approval must be gained from the Italian parliament. And then she says, after that, the Agency for Digital Italy will define the technical standards for the practical, practical use of blockchain verification in the country according to the announcement. Now, this amendment was, uh, um, yeah, it's in the process of being approved by the Italian parliament and it was classified under business administrative procedure and uh, telematics. And considering that some of the key words in the EU uh, regulation that I quoted from that references electronic identification, electronic documents, electronic signatures, electronic delivery services, and interoperable e-government services across the European Union. Um, I assume that that's going to be the potential scope for why Italy is moving forward with recognizing this, because maybe they want to lead the way in the use of blockchain or distributed systems as a 
um, memorization or notarization mechanism. Um, so, I mean, it definitely seems like there's a trend within the EU regulatory authorities to consider using this stuff for, uh, you know, unifying the digital strategy of the European Union or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so that's basically what I saw with this story. I was just going to say, like, it's, uh, you know, these timestamps is uh, one of those aspects within the uh, idea of Bitcoin blockchain that, you know, I could see government using for different aspects of like notary and making sure like timing and everything. And so, I mean, like, but they they're building out like uh, timestamps for their with their own blockchain or is it because like I read it as open timestamps. So I was thinking like, oh, good, they're going to be like using open timestamps. But I guess, yeah, I was wrong on that. Do, do they say which blockchain they're going to be using? I, th I think it's just no. general. Yeah, yeah it's very general. But I mean, you know, I think things like this are really common sense for governments like at this day and age. Like it's, it is literally like a thermodynamically guaranteed proof of a timestamp. And I think there's absolutely no reason that that should not be admissible and recognized in court. Yeah, and just to make clear the scope of like, I was quoting from the the article eight stuff, but I was also quoting from a larger document from the EU regulations and the Italian, um, the Italian Senate uh, amendment that was accepted uh, that really all it does is define what a distributed system is and then what a smart contract is or what a distributed register is. And then paragraph three is basically saying that they expect it to have the same legal effect as other forms of notarization for documents, especially digital documents. So they're basically, they're not really saying much. They're just saying that they're going to recognize it as a legitimate way to do that. Um, but beyond that, they haven't said anything. All right. Well, that sounds uh, interesting. We'll have to see if they're actually going to do something that makes government more efficient. So uh, going into the next story about local Bitcoins here, we have another phishing attack. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this one's at local Bitcoins. From a uh, Reddit thread yesterday, there was a public service announcement from user Bitcoin Babui, who noticed the potential threat in local Bitcoin subdirectory forums. Users are prompted to log into their account as if they had been logged out. And this only seems to happen if you are already logged in, which one in, which one inputted this would still was once inputted. This would steal your account info and drain your account. And commenting on the thread, one user says he was probably the first to fall victim to the attack, losing 0.14 Bitcoin. And the receiving address for that is already up to 7.95 Bitcoin, around $28,000. And uh, this attack has been pretty effective and, you know, we'll always keep seeing these classic uh, phishing attacks crop up. So keep your eyes peeled. Now, local Bitcoins released a statement. Quote, we would like to inform that today, January 26, 2019, yesterday, at approximately 10 UTC, local Bitcoins has detected a security vulnerability. An unauthorized source was able to access and send transactions from a number of affected accounts. Outgoing transactions were temporarily disabled while we investigated the case. We were able to identify the problem, which was related to a feature powered by a third-party software 
and stop the attack. At the moment, we are determining the correct number of users affected. So far, six cases have been confirmed. For security reasons, the forum feature has been disabled until further notice. Outgoing transactions have already been re-enabled, and we have taken a number of measures to address this issue and secure the limited number of accounts that might have been at risk. Your local Bitcoin's accounts are currently safe to log in and use. We encourage you to enable two-factor authentication if you have not yet. And uh, definitely always do 2FA. And uh, yeah, this was just like a, uh, you know, something that got posted yesterday on Reddit and took a look at it and saw how many people were already been affected and just figured we should definitely, you know, say something about this and uh, let everybody know that, you know, if you use local Bitcoins, I mean, you should be safe if you just miss this. But uh, for sure, always keep your eye out and check domains that you're uh, you're logged on to, you know, links, everything. Make sure, avoid these phishing attacks. They're always going to crop up. We'll see them in different places. And, you know, this one was pretty good about, you know, just sort of hiding in this uh, form subdirectory. And, you know, nobody, nobody really paid attention to it. And then next thing you know, they've got over seven Bitcoin of people. So be precautious, people. So, uh, yeah, that's what's going on at local Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And on the side of businesses, dependencies, you should not just blindly be incorporating third-party packages, libraries, and services, because everything you integrate into your service is a code base that potentially has exploits or routes to infiltrate your system. I mean, like, it was like, what, four months ago? Like when I was in uh, Thailand, like we saw this exact same thing. The uh, Copay uh, JavaScript library that was pretty much handed over to a random person who then tried to sneak an exploit into it. Like every piece of software dependency that your service or business or software has in it is a security vulnerability potentially. And that's something businesses in this space need to take seriously and think about and not treat it like some JavaScript website where I'm just going to import a dozen libraries and not care about what they are, who's maintaining them. Like it, it, that's just piss poor security practice. Yeah, it's hard to uh, make sure the system stays secure and functions correctly so yeah always try to do your best so um talking about a system correct like functioning correctly let's uh get into this next story which is uh you know yeah it's uh politics with no real bitcoin crypto in the story other than what we kind of talked about last week so what gives well this really all fits into a bigger narrative and hopefully this story will allow us to discuss this uh macroeconomic issue all right so most everyone knows, maybe you don't, that you, you know, it's been everywhere. The U.S. government has been shut down since December 22nd over the issue of funding the southern border of the United States. Now, this is not really anything new, government shutdowns, that is. In fact, it's sort of commonplace now. When funding directives come through the pipe, this is when we see heels dig in to try and strong arm through new legislation. And there was even a moment this month when it looked like Trump was going to use his state of emergency powers to push the border funding through. And now Nancy Pelosi is looking to use her power of inviting the president, so to speak, uh, to speak at the House of the 
at the House for the State of the Union address. Like the president always gives the State of the Union address, but there is this formality beforehand where the House Speaker is supposed to invite the president to come speak. And so now she's thinking about using that to basically strong arm this thing the other direction. Now, these strong arm power play politics are a great example of why we need these decentralized systems like Bitcoin. And it's just very obvious that this is our way or the highway, this get in consensus or hard fork attitude. The main pressure holding it up is financial decisions from those who are closely allied, aligned with power brokers who keep the system functioning through monetary and fiscal policy. Now, this whole situation affected the world of crypto, like we said last week, with the SEC and CFTC putting the brakes on launches and approvals of new cryptocurrency products, such as the back launch. That's what we talked about last episode. And uh, which uh, that's aggravating. But to me, this is all just undermines our democracy even further than it already has. And it's really aggravating to see representatives of the people behave this way. It's what's been happening for years, but if we could separate finance and government, it could lead less up to these uh, grinding to a halt from budgetary decisions. And so another point is at the same time, we are trying to, over, to, throw, to overthrow leaders. While it's obvious we are not really represented here in our own country, these forces are rogue and they need to be reined in. I'm not sure exactly how that's achieved. And, you know, I mean, like, but I'm moving forward with Bitcoin because I know it's involved. And uh, now the government has reached a temporary deal to fund its non-essential workers again for 21 days. And, uh, you know, so for the next three weeks, we're going to see how this holds. But I mean, like, I think this is just a great example of like how crazy this like this government consensus that was supposed to keep legislation moving forward to operate for the people by the people has been so bastardized and taken over to the point to where now you just have two individuals who don't like one another. And now basically, uh, you know, these people that are quote unquote non-essential are not being paid and uh, they're supposed to continue doing their work. And, you know, that sort of have outcomes to where we've seen some problems uh, where, you know, people, I mean, it's just, there's lots of issues coming up where you see people going to say, well, we'll volunteer to clean up the national park. And then there's like national park employees screaming back at them, well, you can't clean up. And it's just it's this weird situation that's really got everybody at odds. And I feel like Bitcoin, if we were able to implement that somewhere within these uh, governance structures, it would sort of reduce these risks. But that's my own sort of speculative thought on the whole matter. But um, yeah, what did you guys have any comment on this at all? I don't really want to drag you into it if you don't want to talk about it. But politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like this whole situation is like the perfect example of to steal a libertarian uh, slash conservative uh, quip why government should be small enough to drown in the bathtub because like th this is just absolutely absurd and you know to get get a little uh into like my personal uh, interactions with this whole situation like one of my oldest friends actually uh, works in the national park services doing forestry management and that was one of the jobs that was considered non-essential and i think that is kind of absurd to say that managing the natural ecosystems in this country so that they don't deteriorate is considered non-essential and 
like really i think that the solution to nonsense like this affecting it is simple like things like that should not be a part of the government they should be spun off into nonprofit organizations and effectively operate independently and i think that a lot of things in terms of services or bureaucracies in the government that people think provide important services should be handled that way i mean like the the government people in the government like trump and pelosi getting into a personally driven shit fit with each other should not be able to affect negatively important things that keep society functioning like they should not have that much of a direct influence on things and important things should not have that heavy of a dependence on the government's tax revenue to actually pay for itself. And like the, this whole situation is just absolutely fucking absurd and childish, like all around. I'm with you, man, a hundred percent on that. And I mean, like maybe that is where the answer comes from is like, uh, you know, varied interest from regional areas that gather together to pool funds to protect certain things like forestry and uh, making sure that those things are set up to avoid forest fires. I mean, that's where, yeah, I think Bitcoin and the ability to formulate multi-sigs and, um, you know, just aligned interests. I think we could solve a lot of these problems. And I think, you know, you're right. I mean, it's like, where do these labels come from as far as like you're essential and you're non-essential? And I mean, cause I've, Definitely, like these things went back to way back whenever I was in the military, a government shutdown happened and it was like a question of like, well, wait a minute, what what happens? They're like, no, you're essential. You, you got to be there. It's like, oh, OK. But I mean, like this is where it is one of those things where it's just like, OK, all of a sudden this little personal conflict, it not just like throws your little thing into where you're governing this part of the region that you live in and you're that's sort of your position within the community. It's also just like wrecking your ability to actually make a paycheck and feed your family. And that is just it's it's absurd. It's really, really disturbing that that's sort of the thing. The, the, the way we're at right now is just like the government could shut down. People aren't getting paid like things aren't getting done all because of an argument over something that I understand. I mean, it's a legitimate place to have an argument, but it should not bring the government to a grinding halt. Like these things should function outside of the system. I think you're right on that. Well, the, the, I mean, I don't know whether it's more amusing or infuriating, but uh, what I find interesting is that these government employees, first of all, they don't, as, as federal workers, um, they don't have the right to go on strike. They don't have the right to protest, to do protests of any kind regarding their employment. Uh, like, so what most of them are doing is that they're calling in sick because they literally just can't not go to work. Uh, they have to basically say, I can't work, but most of them, you know, a lot of them are probably because they have to make money somehow. And so they're going to other jobs and they're just saying, you know, I'm sick to their federal government job and not showing up. Uh, the other thing they're not allowed to do is that they're not, they're restricted in terms of engaging in political speech. So like for even any of them to go on television and make a big deal 
out or talk about how this is affecting them and why this is a problem that could potentially be dangerous and they can just get cut off. So I just find it, you know, interesting that we think that, oh, the government protects workers' rights and all of this garbage. And then it's like, oh, you're not even giving your own employees rights. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'll, one of the things I, I, it was something funny I saw, I think it was either CNN or N NBC. I don't watch them enough to even recognize the logos, but there was a report um, about uh, LaGuardia Airport in New York being like put put to a full stop or something like, like it was shut down. And that was the headline. And then you actually listen to the interview that they were doing with someone from I whatever the air traffic control stations are whoever manages that and they're like no it's not it's not shut down it's not fully closed we you know it just means that there might be some delays and some flights to, you know to some places might not work out like it was really funny they never changed the headline while they were interviewing this guy who is like saying no it's not shut down it's okay uh, but they were saying no full stop the airport is closed <laughs> it's like jesus you can't even get that right yeah, that, that's another aspect, <laughs> like something like fucking air traffic control. That is, I mean, I don't want to say more important than land management, but definitely equally as important. It should not be affected by something like this. <laughs> I should point out, I think um, for any non-Americans in the room, or actually no, some, most Americans probably don't know this either, but um, yeah, uh, a lot of countries that you would expect expect to have nationalized those kinds of services uh they're actually privatizing like i think germany and even canada and france i'm not sure about france but i definitely know canada and germany that kind of role is privatized so the fact that that is being disrupted like people <laughs> you would expect you know considering the kinds of politics that they often have or engage in you would think that canada and germany would have nationalized that by now but no they, it's privatized yeah it's a it's a i don't know it's it's something that we've got to remedy i mean this situation and it's definitely not going to come from you know the people that are getting hurt by because like you said i mean like they're kind of in a position where they can't really stand up and speak and um you know it's we're in a position where if we like all sort of rally together i mean you know, they're liable to shut us down this way or that. And, you know, most likely through the banking system as well. And this is where, you know, Bitcoin's going to shine. And I think we're actually going to do a lot of great things for, uh, you know, allowing people to actually take care of their own little regions and sort of self-sovereign governance through, uh, you know, regional communities. Hopefully, I mean, like my fingers are crossed. I'm watching it. I'm working with it. Like, uh, but this story is just one where it's like, it's just, yeah, there's just so much wrapped in it. I felt like I had to bring it up. So, uh, yeah, we got another few stories. Maybe we should just uh, continue to push into those. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess uh, you two are up next. Yeah, like, honestly, this uh, next one, like, um, I really don't have that much on it. I imagine, uh, you know, like, it's just really an announcement from Gab that said they had plans to, uh, you know, create a browser. And then someone said, you know, hey, great idea. Can you integrate Bitcoin instead of that? Like, you know, and like uh, Gab was saying, like, hey, that's the plan. We're going to fork Brave, remove Bat, and, uh, you know, they should have stuck with Bitcoin, which is what we will do. I mean, that's what their tweet said. And. So, I mean, it's interesting to see this uh, idea of like the brave bat, like people 
do like the Brave browser, and people are kind of getting really confused with this bat token and what's going on there. So, and Gab has already really made a large stance to stand up for free speech. And so to see a browser, you know, be created where, uh, you know, Bitcoin payments will be implemented and you know that the uh, people sort of running the back end of that, they're like, they have a firm footing in the idea of like, this is for free speech and we're not trying to censor this market. Like that's something that's uh, big and I think we should keep an eye on. It was just mentioned, but um, yeah, I'm, I just wanted to grab it and sort of bring it up to talk about what what you guys think of it. Um, I mean, the the one thing I'd want to know, I saw someone, I, for some reason, Gab, uh, when I went to grab the tweet to read it, uh, their account was protected. I don't know if it still is, but I had to find an archive of that tweet to read it. Um, and I saw that someone, I think it was a person from Brave actually replied and said that if they did fork the Brave browser, it wouldn't work because they're using native ad blocking that Gab wouldn't be able to access. Now, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, like, I don't know what kind of special things they have with their ad blocking that would not work in a fork, but that would certainly be uh, an interesting, uh, that would be an interesting crutch in the road if uh, they would not be able to fork it without having all of the privacy features. And it's also kind of anti-competitive because if you if they basically built a privacy feature that, you know, you have to use the Brave browser and no one else can, you know, develop a different version if they disagree with your development decisions, that's, you know, a bit restrictive. So I want to know whether that's actually the case and whether it would not be possible to do a fork of the Brave browser. Well, I don't really know what the hell Brave is talking about there either, but I think like that's just kind of ridiculous. Like, you know, to my understanding, ad blocking is pretty much just the browser or a plugin to the browser or whatever, just intercepting things being sent by a web server and not resolving or blocking specific things and i mean you know whether they have something closed source which i find like odd if that's the case or just something that they have a better understanding of they don't think gab can actually handle i mean that's that's absurd to say that gab cannot get some kind of ad blocking working in the browser but I'm just more skeptical about the viability of this in the long term because, you know, this a web browser is a really complex piece of software with a lot of moving parts and things to keep track of. And it is critically important in terms of security. Like most, like pretty much your average person, like 99% of their interaction with things online is through a web browser. Like that is a huge attack surface that needs constant maintenance, bug fixes, and like paying attention to security issues. And that's a lot of resources. So, I mean, like in principle, like, yeah, I would love to see Brave, you know, forked and Bitcoin reintegrated and move away from this bat token horse shit that they, you know, dug themselves into. But I'm just really skeptical that Gab would actually have the resources and the the time to really 
give the proper attention to maintaining a web browser. Like that just seems like a lot to chew off. And given the fact that like they're, they're just a social media company, like where are you going to get the revenue and funding for that? Like, uh, like where are your resources to devote to that? And I'm going to be skeptical until I see a concrete demonstration of the ability to do that and actually sustain it. Yeah, I believe it was uh, Sarah Jamie Lewis who said something along the lines of that, you know, the browser ecosystem is a complete mess and the, you know, it's securing that kind of stuff is very hard and it's very, very, very complicated. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the easiest way technically for them to fork the Brave browser so that it has Bitcoin is to just fork an older version of Brave browser because they used to have the Bitcoin wallet. Obviously, they can't, you know, completely, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to use all of that code because it involved a BitGo integration that was this weird semi-custodial type of scheme. Um, so they would have to change that. But otherwise, they could probably they could probably just take that old interface that's not being used anymore because now they've switched to the bat token. But then like what security patches are they losing? What old vulnerabilities are they bringing into yeah. the picture? And the more they yeah, deviate they all of that. And then like the more they deviate the code base like the harder it is to rebase like new things from Brave's version of the browser. And I mean, it's like, that it's, it's just a huge undertaking. And as much as I would like to see it, I'm very skeptical that they can actually do this and sustain it in the long term. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say like exactly how they're gonna build this out. Like you're saying, I mean, they don't really have uh, that much in the plans for it other than saying like, that's the plan, like we're gonna do this. and. I mean, uh, we're kind of getting that on a lot of levels. I mean, with the uh, the whole Patreon nonsense where everybody's saying, like, we're going to, you know, like this uh, this thing's not good. You know, we're going to create an alternative. And um, the same goes with uh, with this situation. And, um, you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm just happy to see, like, you know, somebody thinking about, like, you know, doing that sort of uh, implement that sort of uh, payment in within the browser because, I mean, people do like that brave browser and you know i mean people are just confused by the bat and if people had the ability to use a browser that was just like brave but had bitcoin in it i think that uh you know we would start to see you know more users kind of come into the system but it is one of those where you know it's all just a you know a bunch of talk right now we're going to have to keep keep our eye on it see where it goes I mean, like, I'm, I'm rooting for him to do it and pull it off, but it's like, you know, you need to show me something more than a tweet before I'm actually going to take that seriously or consider using something like that. Yeah, definitely need some more roadmap there. All right, well, I guess on to the next one. Yeah, so uh, Japan uh, SBI made an investment in uh, the Swiss startup Tangem, which uh, we covered this whenever they first came out. These uh, these uh, banknotes for digital assets, where it was like these interesting little cards where uh, people put like a small amount of BTC on them, and people were allowed to, you know, it's kind of like a Bitcoin uh, voucher, but just like a paper wallet. Like, so, uh, SBI said it had invested in tangent because it's quote inexpensive and robust, uh, wallet product 
product could help boost demand for crypto assets as well as its own products. Uh, the Tangem hardware wallet, which is highly secure and affordable, is an important tool to promote mass adoption of digital assets and blockchain. And uh, that was uh, Yoshita Kakitao. I'm sorry if I totally mispronounced that and wrecked it. But I do like the idea of these vouchers in the way that people could just uh, load up some Bitcoin and, um, you know, get those out. And uh, I think I've seen another project uh, being worked on similar to this, but um, I think Beautyon's working on that. I was actually going to put that on the news desk, but just sort of ran out of time to cover that next week. But uh, yeah, so... SBI, you know, those guys are, uh, SBI group has pretty much been, um, you know, making some investments all over the space and it looks like they're, uh, going to be taking over this, uh, these tangum. I'm sorry. I must, must be mispronouncing it. Ten, tangum. tangum I, I've part. always just pronounced him Tangum, but I have no clue. So yeah, they're, uh, they're investing in these Tangum cards and I imagine, uh, you know, there'll be something that we could use in the future. So, uh, yeah, what do you guys think about that? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, from a user experience perspective, it's a nice thing, and it definitely simplifies things for the end user. But, like, my main issue with things like this, and I mean, like, this, I like it kind of applies to, like, an open dime as well, if you really try to, like, push that as like a huge like use case is these things just don't scale in bulk i mean yeah like you know if i'm just taking an open dime to give somebody bitcoin or like make a really huge purchase in person or something like that makes sense but it's like you can't just make like millions of these and then have people use them as cash it just doesn't scale I mean, like, I've, like, I'm actually, I need to get back to finishing it, but I was writing an article on this a while ago. I got sidetracked on, like, look at, like, the, the banknote supply of England. I think it's, like, 10 billion banknotes in circulation or something. Well, if you try to translate that to something like these Tangum cards, that's, like, 2.9 gigabytes in the utxo set just for that series of banknotes of a small island country with a tiny population that adds almost three gigabytes to the utxo set and it would literally take years to load all of them with bitcoin if block space was being used for absolutely nothing but loading those banknotes so i mean like on the user end yeah they're awesome but trying to really scale this kind of thing up to widespread adoption it just absolutely does not scale and like I, i've had my own ideas as to how you can try and do something like this where you just have these backed by time locked bitcoins but that introduces like a counterparty risk whenever that time lock comes close to expiring. And recently I've been kind of thinking about maybe how graft root could be used to have a bunch of these things all tied to one output in a decentralized way 
but like I've only begun thinking about that and the only way I think this could work is literally having enormous webs of pre-signed transactions on these cards and that like that would just explode to an insane size and require a lot of storage on each of these cards to hold all of them redundantly like multiple times so that memory failing didn't fuck something up along the line so i mean like there is potential for things like this i i think to use in a somewhat centralized way with most of the risk mitigated by time locking things and then connecting a merkle root with all of the notes in a note series and i mean maybe taproot could do something like that in a more decentralized way but i have not spent any serious time thinking about that but i mean just using these like here's just one address i load it up and it's a cash note that just absolutely does not scale it, it, it will not work to any large degree i guess uh sbi holdings is gonna have to figure out like whether or not they can get it to work for them. But I mean, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, there's some interesting thought processes there as far as like trying to just onboard people with these uh, vouchers. Like I was saying, I think it's uh, Azteco is the other one that Beautyon's working on. And, um, you know, I was trying to look into that. And uh, like you're saying with the uh, graph route, there's just like lots of interesting stuff that still needs to be tested out. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, like if it's a, uh, it's not like this, sorry, but I need to research more into this. But I mean, I'm just seeing more about uh, vouchers and Bitcoin on the actual paper side of things. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like, you know, you can just, like I said, you could still use this as a way to like back uh, a note with Bitcoin that's time locked and like have this be counterfeit proof. Like you could use this for other chains that are more centralized. And I mean, like the, this technology would even work just to replace fiat and be like more uh, counterfeit proof. Like it's still useful, but just the way that this company is trying to say it's useful right now, I think is just not practical at all. All right. So what's going on with uh, Monero, man? Uh, well, I can cover this one, at least the general details. Um, there is a research lab called Nonsense, like nonce um, in mining, uh, which I think is a good name. Uh, and they published a paper that made the rounds on Twitter and Reddit in the last week. Um, it has since been noted that they, quote, identified the possibility for transaction volume to exceed infrastructure capacity in September 2018. This was privately disclosed to other Monero researchers and was modeled in a initially private repository, which has now been made public. So you can do the whole don't trust verify thing on the um, on the code, run the simulation code yourself to see if the result is the same. And uh, they've continued to hold private meetings with various Monero researchers to develop mitigation strategies for this. And the disclosure to the Monero Research Lab was made public in November 2018. Uh, so this paper has been available in some form for a while now. 
um, at least two months, and they say that they will continue to uh, hold open community dis discussion about long-term solutions, which will be implemented hopefully in late 2019. So for anyone who doesn't know, Monero currently has this rule that um, each block cannot be larger than the median size of the previous 100 blocks. That's stated in the abstract of the paper. And it lays out how this could be a problem in an Icarus adoption scenario where um, they say whether benignly or maliciously that can cause a flood of transactions to increase, increase resource requirements beyond the capacity of the Monero infrastructure ergo exceeding the disk space or bandwidth of most nodes and miners. And they claim that within 36 hours, the Monero blockchain in this kind of, under this kind of condition would grow to like 30 terabytes, which is uh, unmanageable. Um, four days ago in the thread on this, the Monero subreddit where this paper was shared, a one of the moderators said that mitigations will be included in the next release to prevent this kind of attack. And furthermore, this has been discussed extensively in the last couple of weeks in the Monero Research Lab meetings. Uh, I found it funny that they add at the end, edit a question for the community, would it perhaps be better to remove this thread before someone malicious stumbles upon it and gets the idea to execute it? Uh, they said that no, because it's already been public for a while now, so there wouldn't be a point. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like, like this is just, ridiculous because like Monero already has huge scaling issues that just result from its use of uh, ring signatures and the way it handles outputs. Like you cannot tell whether an output in a transaction is spent or not. So you literally have to keep all of them. Like Bitcoin's UTXO set, it can shrink, it can grow, but it's only the unspent outputs like all outputs from spent transactions don't have to be a part of it in Monero they do so their equivalent of the UTXO set continues growing infinitely and it can never shrink and then on top of that like the dynamic block size enabling something like this you're just exponentially compounding a pre-existing scaling issue because, I mean, th what this really comes down to isn't just that, like, the blockchain gets super big and people can't run nodes anymore. It means that the, the UTXO set that you have to, to validate to validate a block grows way more than it would on something like Bitcoin in this case. So, like, they say that it, it would be 30 terabytes in 36 hours. No node would be able to operate way before that way before that and it, like to me this is just fundamentally it shows like these kind of flex cap ways to handle a block size is just not viable if there is no upper bound then this can happen and like that that's just how the architecture works and if there is an upper bound then why have a flexibility at all? Just have a finite upper bound. Like it, it, it's not a logical concept in my mind. But yeah, I mean, it's like this Monero just doesn't scale in the long term. It was never going to. And frankly, anybody who ever thought it would just had their head in the sand. It was a temporary solution that worked 
And I mean, like, they did do a good job about getting some light off of us whenever all that shadow was being cast about how Bitcoins are just for criminals. So, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of stinks, but, you know, there's other answers out there now. Yeah, and I just want to point out that um, I think it was a few days ago, I was, it was like in this whole thread about uh, whether Block Digest should be added to this website about Bitcoin only focused resources. And um, I don't, I guess, I don't know, remember exactly what my statements were in the past about Litecoin, but I actually said that the only other cryptocurrency I was on the, well, you don't have to show that now. <laughs> we're not to that yet, but uh, you can have that as a backdrop, I guess. <laughs> Um, I said that the only other cryptocurrency I was on the fence about or had really any interest in was Monero. And, but I clarified that I only use Bitcoin. And I want to add another clarification to say that when I say that I'm interested in Monero, that's only to the extent where it is more useful for the purpose of having privacy in your financial transactions than Bitcoin. But that usefulness I, I think will become increasingly untenable, especially with, you know, we've been watching the development of Wasabi Wallet and CoinJoins in general and the Lightning Network, which is adding privacy, which I don't think is quite there yet with Monero, but obviously Bitcoin will have the scalability that Monero will have to struggle for. And so I think a similar thing, which I basically when the Lightning Network went live, I think the use case for Litecoin basically evaporated in terms of like, you know, sending transactions that are fast and have some some comparable degree of security and, you know, a guarantee ability or whatever. That basically evaporated with the Lightning Network. And I think, I mean, my prediction is a similar thing will probably happen with Monero, but I'm not going to disparage people who make the trade-off to use Monero because they have a legitimate reason to have more privacy in their financial transactions. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe even with the extra privacy on Monero, it still would make more sense to use Bitcoin just because it's, there's more availability and more people accept it and use it. Um, but that's a trade-off that I think, you know, everyone has to make. But yeah, uh, if we want to get into this thing with Zcash, um, I am compelled to talk about this because Matthew Green decided to insert himself into my mentions. Uh, if you scroll up to the very top, this thread started off with Peter Todd sharing an article about how the Winklevi, um, the Winklevoss twins, uh, said that regulators are more comfortable with Zcash. And so, you know, it, it the thread was not accusatory in Anyway, Peter Todd just asked, you know, is there something that they know about Zcash that we don't? And so it basically became a discussion about like, what are the differences between Monero and Zcash and why would regulators be more interested in Zcash than Monero um, if they supposedly have better privacy technology? And um, two of the things that uh, I think I, yeah, I, I mentioned quotes. I, so I cited quotes directly from Zuko, didn't make any statement about that, I just said, one does wonder. And then that was a collection of tweets uh, that I had uh, screenshotted a while ago in a separate thread. And someone else pointed out, oh, Zuko made these comments at a conference about um, regulators. And he had some inconsistencies about whether privacy was a fundamental right. And yet they don't enable uh, the, uh, what are they called? 
<laughs> I can't even remember the term for the transactions that are shielded. Um, so in Monero, the biggest difference is that all transactions have, the, it's mandatory that you use the anonymity features where as in Zcash, it's not mandatory, it's optional. And most people do not use it. I think, uh, what what is the latest figure? Less than 3% of addresses or transactions use the shielded addresses. It's extremely low. And so then I also pointed out another quote that I had personally heard at a conference where someone gave a talk and said, you know, a generalized statement about privacy being a strategy and not a right. And someone who I may or may not name, I mean, it's not too sensitive. They said it very publicly in front of a couple hundred people, but this person was from the Zcash Foundation. And he said after this talk, wow, that made me really question whether privacy should be a right. And so now you get to the bottom of the thread, which is Matthew Green being all high and mighty about, oh, you're you're engaging in conspiracy theories. It's like, first of all, no, we're not. We're quoting things that I have personally heard, other people have personally heard, that are on recorded video. There is no conspiracy in this thread that you see here. It is just that, you know, asking questions. Why is the cash more attractive to authorities? And it's also funny that Matthew Green should, you know, chastise me for not really engaging in conspiracy theories because the last conversation I had with him, he questions why I was, he questioned why I was human because I didn't believe that WikiLeaks had deliberately was involved in the spread of the conspiracy theory. What many people rightly or wrongly regard as a conspiracy theory about the, the identity of the DNC leaker. And he, you know, made a bunch of claims about that, but uh, yeah, so yeah, discuss about, I don't know, this tweet or just Zcash in general, what you think about that. Fuck it. I'm going to do something live. Uh -oh. oh, God, Shinobi. <laughs> Shinobi. Shinobi. <laughs> we don't need to oh, do Oh, no. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, Anyway, back to the original topic. Oh. Why do you think cash is more interesting to regulators? I definitely think it has a lot to do with the shielded transactions and the fact that it's only 3% of the network and they see that as a walled garden that they could definitely break the anonymity set very easily and, and track down anyone they want. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's there are public transactions and that they can force people to use public addresses whenever they interact with any kind of financial institution. I'm sorry, guys, but you're you're both engaging in conspiracy theory. Like, how do you even how do you even know what kinds of transactions Zcash is using? Are you surveilling Zcash? Uh oh, statistics of the network. No. <laughs> No, you I'm cannot not use like posts from the Zcash website or something. I'm spying on Zcash. <laughs> and legitimately, I think it also has something to do with the very like the fact that they've got a found they've got a foundation, they've got a leader. I think that's something that the government likes. So I'm not going to talk about other networks that's similar to that, but it's just like uh, you know, people like people in the government like it whenever there's like a, an easy like go-to point of control. And that's what Zoku is. I mean, like this network, like he might say, is like, you know, it could function without him. But um, the reality is like all these networks, I mean, if there's a, if there's some like, you know, person being held on high within the network, whether it's, you know, Charlie Lee, Fluffy Pony, Vitalik or Zoku, I mean, like that is someone that they could go to and it will put a, 
a pinch on that network. And I mean, like we're saying, it's already fairly easy to break the anonymity set. You could definitely force people to come in on unshielded transactions. There's just like multiple ways where, yeah, I guess that it's uh it's a little bit easier than going to the Monero guys. I suppose that's why they like it better. And I mean, like Zoku said this much. I mean, like, re remember that tweet? Was it in 2016 or 17? Whenever he said that we could make Bitcoin fungible enough to where it's like it could still obfuscate transactions, but not for criminals. I mean, like, uh, you know, that's his. Yeah, he he said that regards to Zcash. That was one of the ones that that was that was one of the tweets that I screenshotted. Um, and it's like. I didn't make any statement about them. I've made statements about them in the past, but it's like, do you not find that concerning that the CEO of a company says something like that? Like it doesn't, it has nothing to do with whether Zcash is actively engaging in a conspiracy <laughs> with law enforcement. It has to do with, they are making, they are saying things, whether deliberately or not, that are making them attractive to that kind of attention. The fact that they are, mostly in the United States, the fact that they have a company at all, the fact that they have a foundation at all, the fact that they are all identifiable by their real identities, the fact that they say that they're willing to work with law enforcement and that they can make their cryptocurrency not fungible enough to be used by criminals, whatever that means. Um, that's not a conspiracy, that's quoting people directly. And if you don't see something concerning about statements like that, that's your fault, but do not be surprised that people who actually care about privacy and understand the consequences of things like that, actually doing them or saying them in practice is a problem. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, I think we just hit the nail on the head as to why regulators favor Zcash. It's got to do with basically language from the people in charge. I mean, like, Fluffy Pony is not, he's not, his language doesn't speak like that, I don't think. I mean, like, he very much kind of came from the maximalist perspective and likes the idea of privacy and uh, doesn't really like big government entities. And so I think that's why they favor it. But I mean, like among the other things we just listed too. Mm -hmm. Well, just hit the two hour mark. And unless you guys have any last things to add on this, I think that's a wrap for the day. So final thoughts? Um, let's see. Loading, loading. Beep, boop, thoughts, loading. All right. Oh, I have one. Um, I really like Jesse Powell's uh, Not Your Vault, Not Your Gold. In response to uh, Venezuela not being able to, well, I shouldn't say, in response to the uh, disgraced side of the Venezuelan government not being able to get their gold back from the Bank of England. I think that technically it was just like, they. I don't know, I saw this argument on there where it was like, they didn't actually request it. It was just the United States government requested the British government, like, don't let them move that gold. And the British government said, oh. all right. That's interesting. Wow, the U.S. is really putting its foot down, isn't it, again? Yeah, that story is, uh, yeah, it's all over the place. But I do like that comment, not your not your uh, vault, not your gold. Because, I mean, that is one of the things where when people do, like, start comparing Bitcoin to gold and all these things, it's like the storage problem of gold is one of the major hiccups on all that. It's like, uh, you know, you need large amounts of security, large amounts of uh, 
you know, men with guns and, you know, all this sort of thing to keep that, uh, that thing going. And, uh, that's just a big hang up. We don't really have in Bitcoin. So I guess, you know, I'll let you bring up, uh, Venezuela real quick. There's a, a tweet thread I found yesterday from a wall street journal, um, Latin America editor or editor who kind of summarized things. And he, he I think he put this in a, a really nice analogy. Imagine a world where U.S. President Donald Trump stacked the Supreme Court and other institution with political hacks. The midterms come and Democrats win two-thirds majority in Congress. Then Trump gets the courts to declare Congress null and void and ignores it. Trump creates another Congress filled with his own supporters to pass laws. When people protest, he sends out the National Guard to crack down. Hundreds are killed. Thousands arbitrarily arrested. Top Democratic leaders are arrested or forced into exile. Trump then heads for re-election. His administration bans Democrats from running. They hold the election with everybody boycotting anyway. Nobody's allowed to observe it. Even the person who set up the voting system says there's fraud. Trump gets sworn in by his fake Congress. The real Congress, meanwhile, says he's an illegitimate president. And according to law, they swear in the head of Congress as the legitimate president until new elections, who is recognized by many nations. Now, is that a coup by the real Congress or has the coup already taken place by the president? In a nutshell, that's what happened in Venezuela. I mean, like, I can totally be sentimental to that. Like, I understand. I agree. And I, that's where it's like the whole thing is kind of complicated in a way where it's like, I definitely think that Maduro is a dictator and he's somebody that is kind of just wielding with his power with an iron fist. But it's hard for me to like, you know, say that, you know, we're not uh, facing some issue here where it's just like, um, you know, something similar where, you know, there has been a coup. I mean, like, I'm not going to say like, uh, you know, the Trump Trump's the coup. Like, I mean, but there has been this thing like going back earlier, way back whenever we were talking about, you know, just follow KYC. It's like, you know, I went into this system. I joined the army way back in early 2000, 2001. And that was under the assumption that I was fighting for rights that were in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, like back those up and everything. And then, you know, getting injured and then years later coming to find out that, no, my right to privacy is gone. My right to due process, gone. My right to freedom of speech, it's barely hanging on by a thread and I'm watching what I say. So, I mean, like, it's hard for me to just say, like, yeah, you know, we can just replace that over there. Because there's something definitely going on here, too. And, I mean, like, where we should focus our attention, I think it should be here. But, I mean, like, there's definitely some issues going on over there. What's the right answer? It's hard to say. There's so many different forces moving in on this. All right, so my final thought, I'll just like uh, take it a little bit lighter here, is they, uh, the Unconfiscatable Conference just ended. I thought it was pretty fun, you know, watched a few things as far as like poker hands, a couple of interesting panels with, uh, you know, some smart individuals talking about really interesting things. And, uh, you know, there was some good stuff, some crazy stuff, but that's the way those conferences usually go. Um, just wanted to also let you guys know that there is a meetup in uh, Denver this Tuesday at the Bitcoin and Beer Meetup. And also have a meetup in Boulder on Thursday. So those are my thoughts.
Well, now that you just brought up um, unconfiscatable, I think we should share that uh, if anyone is under the impression that Tone came up with the word unconfiscatable, um, that's <laughs> really not true. And in fact, uh, the earliest reference I've found so far to the word unconfiscatable was about gold and the, the reason why gold being unconfiscatable is a myth. So please read. <laughs> I've been thinking about that, like isn't the like non-confiscatable a, a thing? Like I think that's I've heard that, like non-confiscatable. It's non, but you know, I don't know. Well, all I know is that fake news tone did not invent that word. <laughs> all right, all right. So I guess on uh, that note, uh, that's a wrap, guys. Later, everyone.